Hey, everyone, and welcome to the State of the Art Podcast with me, your host, Ethan Appleby. I'm very excited to bring you along as I dive into conversations with amazing people who are at the intersection of art and technology. Each week, you'll hear a different angle about how tech is bringing radical change in the way all of us interact with art. We have on artists to first-time collectors, as well as CEOs from some of the top digital art companies. We'll also look at the effects social media sites and crowdsourcing platforms are having on the art world and explore how other creative industries, such as music and fashion, were democratized using technology. Before we get started, I want to tell you about Bango. If you're looking to spruce up your space and add inspiration to your home or office, there's no better way than original art. And Bango is changing the way we discover art from some of the best emerging artists. So visit bangoart.com or download the Bango app on iTunes and use promo code STATEOFTHEART to get 15% off your first purchase. Now, today's episode is a first for State of the Art. We're excited to welcome the first guest who's also a podcast host. I hope she doesn't take my job. Truth is, Joanne Wilson does it all. She's an angel investor, art collector, blogger, podcast host, foodie, mother of three, and founder of the Women's Entrepreneurial Festival. On today's episode, we talk about how she got the nickname Gotham Gal, what she looks for in an art and tech investment, and what makes someone a survivor. So please welcome today's guest, Joanne Wilson, aka The Gotham Gal. Joanne, it is a pleasure to have you on the State of the Art Podcast. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure. It was, uh, you know, I'm coming from the West Coast, so this weather, which is, I don't know, it feels like three Oh, I'm degrees, sure you must be dying. Just dying, freezing. I, I thought I brought enough clothes, but I, apparently I didn't. Um, so interestingly, this will be my first time having a, a fellow host be a podcast guest because you have your own podcast. Yes, I do have it. Positively Gotham Gal. And how long have you been doing that? So I just, um, a year. Okay. Yeah, a year. And how's that been? Is it? It's great. Yeah. It's great. I mean, before I did the podcast, I would write something on Monday on my blog, Gotham Gal, and I would write about the female entrepreneur of the week. And I did this for five years, if not longer, six years. And, you know, I found that the most difficult post to write and it's exhausting and you, you know, there was a format to it and I was sort of like done with it. Yeah. And um, I was like, I need to turn this into something else because I love the conversation. So let's just make it a conversation. Oh, I like that. And so you just said, okay, I'm going to do a podcast. What, did anything surprise you in launching a podcast? Well, not really because... Our family did a podcast back in early 2000, and we would do these podcasts every Sunday night at our family um, after Sunday dinner, and we called them Positively 10th Street because we lived on 10th Street, right. which is why I called this Positively Gotham Gal. <laughs> and so cool. we, I know exactly what to expect in a podcast. Yeah. Good. Well, then I expect you'll be a good guest. <laughs> Keep answers to under 90 seconds yes. and all the other appropriate. Yes. yes. Um, so... Gotham Gal, that, that's what you go by. Tell us, what's the meaning of the name? Honestly, brands are funny. I started writing a blog 15, 14 years ago. And so I had to call it something. Yeah. Right? And so we're like, what are we going to call it? What am I going to call it? And I have always been sort of the, the girl around town in regards to the latest restaurant or where we're shopping or what we're looking at and checking out new areas and really thinking about future stuff. And so I was like, oh, you know, Gotham Gal. And um, it was available. 
you could get the dot you com. Could get the, you know, you got no yeah. problem, gothamgal.com. It was available. Boom, done. I mean, this was not a conversation um, that was longer than 10 minutes. And that was the end. And now yeah. it is what it is. All right. Well, it, you know, it makes me think of, you know, like Gotham City and Batman and, and being a superhero, which yes. in many ways, you know, some people say you are, you do so much. So like clearly, you know, you have some superpowers in here. And uh, I love the allegiance to superheroes uh, when I was uh, not working. Yeah. You know, in New York, one of the things that people love to say, not in California as much, is when you meet people, like literally one of the first things they say to you is, what do you do? Yeah. And that is not something they do in California for whatever reason. It's true. Um, and, you know, I go to these events, but what do you do? What do you do? Yeah. And I was like, it's really annoying if you're not really, you're doing something that you're not getting paid for, but you're enjoying, you know, you're being a mom for a couple of years. Yeah. And so I used to answer to people, I was like, well, I'm a superhero. Or I'd say, you know, nothing, that, you know, I work extremely hard in my superhero role um, without um, getting paid for it. Okay. I like that. Well, let's talk about two of your, your superpowers that you work on. Okay. Uh, investing and art collecting. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting in your office and it's gorgeous, filled with art. Thank you. There's literally a showroom. Do you do any shows here? I ever? don't do shows. You need no. to. It's yeah. a great space. <laughs> how, how did you get into investing in art collecting? Or which one came first? Oh, art collecting came way before investing, okay. for sure. Um, I mean, when we moved to the city after graduating college and started to have a little extra cash, and we were like, okay... Um, no longer posters. Let's, you know, see if we can collect real art. Yeah. And um, and that's when we started collecting. And we bought a couple things that we really loved. We spent time in galleries. We really knew no idea what we were doing. Yeah. And uh, fast forward, uh, you know, our life really changed. We really had no income. We moved to the suburbs. We got back into it. You know, we stopped for a time. We had no cash. Yeah. And then we got back into it when we had cash again. But, you know, the reality is you can buy fabulous art for inexpensive and you should buy what you like. And so we've been collecting forever. Yeah. So, tell, I mean, talk about that. You said buy what you like. I mean, I know you have a, sort of a strong thesis when it comes to investing, which I want to hear more about. But when it comes to collecting, I mean, how do you think about it? Oh, I, I listen, I, um, you know, years ago, I really bought early Early stage art, you know, yeah. things that were, um, you know, under a very low price point because I couldn't afford anything else. Now, of course, I can afford art that's a little more expensive, um, that it's a little more emerged. But the truth is I don't buy like really big name brand artists. I mean, I just never have. It's just not something that interests me. Um, and so um, you know, I go to the shows. I go to Chelsea when I'm in LA. I go to the galleries. I I see what's happening. I go to museums. When we travel, we you know, art is one of the things that we look for. Um, I don't look to artists and think, oh my God, this is an up and coming artist. I should buy this because their work is going to go up in value. Yeah. You know, I buy it because I'm looking at it and I love it, and I think I would really love to live with that piece of art. And to me, that's much more interesting than um, buying because it is the right, it's a great buy. So so would you consider yourself an art collector? Yes. Yes. And at what point did that happen? Did you feel from right away or did it take you a while to get around to accepting that? I think, um, you know, I realized the value in collecting. And certainly when we started buying art, um, 
you know, I remember we, we, um, we built a home and we're like, you know, started collecting art that we wanted to see on those walls. I mean, just like when you walk into someone's house and there's no books, you know, you think, hmm, really? Um, You know, I think that having art on your walls changes the entire feeling of your home. Um, And and it, it, you just, it's wonderful to live with art. And, um, we bought what we loved. And a lot of that art has gone up in tremendous value. Well, that's good. But it wasn't bought with that in, in mind. mind. And so I think then we realized, oh, well, we're sort of, I guess we're collectors. Yeah. Um, so we have continued to collect art over the years um, and things that we just like. It's interesting with, with collecting, you know, you talk to people and you know, you ask someone, are you an art collector? And they'll be like, oh, you know, no, or I'll do a thing in a, you know, a room with full of people. How many of you are art collectors? A few raise their hand. How many of you own a piece of original art? You know, 90% of people might raise their hand. And that makes you a collector. And that makes you a collector. It's like, why don't, you know, what, what is that sort of roadblock in their head that makes them think otherwise? I think uh, it's people feel like if they're not going out and being active in the market, okay, that they're not a collector. Interesting. I think that's what it's about. I mean, you know, do you invest your your money? No. Well, you have a money market account or you have this. Yes, you take care of your money. It's the same thing. If you're not active, that doesn't mean that you're not a collector. Interesting. You know, if you enjoy art, you're interested in, and you make a purchase, and you might not make another purchase for a year and a half, you are still a collector. But I think it's the people refer to active collectors as the only people that are collectors. Yeah. Okay. I like that. So if we if we now look at the investing side, how did you get started in that, and and how has that changed over the years? Um, well, I think it changed like art is when I, um, you know, after the second generation of the web really started to percolate, yeah. and I had been blogging for a couple of years, and it started to talk to a variety of people. I was really watching the next generation of businesses being launched. Mm-hmm. And I was obsessed with Curb Media. I was reading Eater, Curb, and Racked all the time. Yeah. And, um, you know, my husband said, oh, you know, Lockhart is raising money. And I was like, wow. And he, he, I said to him, you would never invest in this. It's not in your thesis. Um, he's like, you should go invest in this company. You would be great at it. You understand um, how to build businesses. You know how to make money. Um, and you would be a tremendous value add. You should go be an investor. You'd be really good at it. And so I contacted Locke and um, gave me the whole pitch. And I was like, I'm in. I sat on his board. I was very involved with this company until we sold it to Box. And it was a great learning experience. But I didn't think of it as my first investor meant like, oh, I'm going to be an investor. Or like, oh, I'm going to be an art collector. It was like all of a sudden I invested in that and then I heard from more people and then I put money into other companies and then I made this conscious decision that I really wanted to invest in women-founded companies and all of a sudden, before I know it, I was an investor. Yeah. Interesting. And so, I mean, talk, talk to me about your thesis when it comes to investing. Yeah. So, at the end of the day, I'm investing in people. I mean, I had someone here this morning who, um, you know, he's going through all the craze that people learn their first year in the business. Um, But I said to him, I invested in you. I knew you'd figure that out. And you're a survivor. And so I think in general, I invest in people that are survivors. Um, I'm also super early. 
And so I would say probably 60% of the businesses that I'm invested in, you know, I literally gave them their first dollar in regards to their first investment. So that's really early. So it's taken a long time for them, many of them to bloom. Um, But on the other hand, you know, I, I want to invest in, um, female founded businesses. Not that I don't invest in men as well, because I do. And I want to, um, be early, early. Um, I want to own 1% of the business, um, from the very beginning. And I want to continue to put money in at every round to continue to own 1% of the business. Um, and then I get involved in the businesses. I'm not a passive investor. Great. Who's a survivor? How do you how do you identify that? What does that mean to you? Well, look at Jen Beckman. I mean, Jen Beckman from Twenty by Two Hundred. Yeah, you know she Twenty by Two Hundred is still out there. Um, she's doing really well. Um, her concept art for everyone. She had VC money. It was a debacle. Um, a story that could be written in the um, the web uh, archives, and um, and she got her company back, and she's back out there and building her company again. So does that mean when you're evaluating someone, maybe you look, have they had a particular struggle or have they kept going or has there been like a major, you know, roadblock or obstacle that they overcame versus someone who might just come in with, you know, a, a degree from a really good school and, you know, a strong pedigree, let's say. Yeah. I mean, if you do this long enough and you meet enough people, you can figure out which ones are the survivors and which yeah. one aren't. You know, you want, I want to invest in someone who, if, the entire world collapses and the entire vertical collapses on Tuesday at 11 o'clock. They know at 11.01 what they need to do to make a change and shift gears. Yeah. And so I think those people are survivors. Yeah. I like that. And most of them are unhirable. Why is that? Because they're, they're entrepreneurs and they think like an entrepreneur and they can't work for anyone. And, um, and those people tend to be survivors because they're not going to go close shop and go work in a big company. And many of them who find themselves being bought by big companies and they have a couple of years to invest, very few of them make it through the vesting schedule. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. So you gave a talk on dreaming big and you, you, you said that, you know, artists should think more like entrepreneurs and vice versa. I'm curious, you know, you could say that sort of collecting art and investing in companies Maybe there's some similarities. You try and identify an artist or a company really early that's undervalued, that, you know, is really passionate about what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Have there been things that you've learned from investing that's helped with collecting and vice versa? Well, at the beginning when we were, um, when I really started collecting art, I really made it a point to meet most of the artists, Yeah, um, which was always fun. Um, now I don't know um, a lot of the artists that we've um, collected, not that I haven't had the opportunity to meet some of them. Um, But, you know, the concept that, to me, is that all cream rises to the top. And that um, even if you're an artist or if you're a technology founder or you, whatever may be the medium that you choose for yourself as an entrepreneur, because I do think artists are entrepreneurs. They're working for themselves is you have to be able to sell yourself. Yeah. And um, you have to be able to um, put yourself out there in the world. It could be your own social media platform now, making sure you're with the right gallery, yeah. and all the things that you need to do as an artist. And so in many ways, 
that's just a different angle versus a tech founder. Yeah, I like that. I feel like artists often struggle though in telling their own story. I mean, maybe entrepreneurs sometimes are more willing to, but artists, you know, are reluctant to talk about themselves or put themselves out there as much as they should, which, you know, is unfortunate because it is often the story that people find, you know, to be that hook. Completely. That brings them in. But I think if you look at the most successful artists, yeah. um, it could be from the 1970s, the 1980s, the 1990s, 2010, I think you will see that those artists that have risen to the top with their careers are... Um, very smart, very magnanimous, mm-hmm. and are very engaging. Um, it is not a super introverted um, artist who happens to be, you know, uh, picked up by Zwerner and Zwerner does all the work. Yeah. It doesn't work like that. Yeah. And there's, you know, we've had a number of artists on this podcast, and it's interesting, you know, you talk, I mean, what Instagram has done as a platform to get them more exposure, or, or what they're doing to work with brands now more and more, which is becoming. Uh, you know, more socially acceptable within the art world to do. And, you know, those are different ways that, you know, it's interesting from a sort of consumer collector perspective. You know, we talked uh, earlier about like what it means to be a collector. You know, you don't often, most people don't often think how much art is around them, you know, and that when artists are working with brands or billboards or anything, I mean, art is all around us and we're exposed to it, but there's still this level of intimidation often for most people to say, I'm going to take a step into like, you know, purchasing a piece of art. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're so obnoxious in most of the galleries and yeah. it's created that way. And I think that as we become a flatter world, particularly with art and technology, mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm invested in a company called TagSmart. Yeah. And the concept is, which I think is where we're going to go, is that all art will be identified by a tag. So almost like this is a real good housekeeping seal of approval. The artist signed it. It's tagged, it's in a database, it will probably be on a blockchain so that you know that if you buy a piece online and it says Gerhard Richter on it, you are rest assured that you are buying a Gerhard Richter. And so that's a really interesting, in terms of the art world, it has to go that way um, because you want to trust who you're making purchases from. Yeah. And so, you know, I I think that um, the importance of where art is going in a flatter world that people are collecting art and putting it on their wall and they want to make that leap of faith and they need to trust what they're buying is on the other end. Now, for all of you listeners who are looking to replace your boring Ikea poster or add another piece to your collection, Bango can help. Bango's revolutionizing the way we discover art. They use machine learning to recommend art that you'll like, augmented reality to let you visualize that art above your couch, and live chats that you text directly with designers, all from your iPhone. They made finding my first piece fun and easy. So don't wait. Visit bangoart.com or download the app on iTunes and use the promo code STATEOFTHEART for 15% off your first purchase. Now, back to the episode. And do you think trust, though, is one of the biggest issues that most people have in making that first purchase? Um, I think that it's it's intimidating. Yeah. There's a lot of things that's ridiculously expensive and yeah. you, you can't help ask yourself. It's like, why is it that price? I don't understand. Yeah. And of course, it has to do with career and providence. In many ways, it's no different. You know, why is your internet company worth that much money? 
you know, well, that much money has gone in and that's what I sold in regards to the percentage of my company. And so I still own 15% because I've had three rounds and this is what everyone owns. But if you think about art, why are Gerhard Richter's millions of dollars? Well, he's in multiple museums around the globe. He's in some of the biggest collectors around the globe. And so if you think about it in terms of the analogy of looking at what a tech company is worth and what an artist is worth, I mean, yeah, it's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah. So, I mean, let's keep going on that. You know, we, you mentioned Jen Beckman uh, from 20 by 200 and she has a sort of, you know, motto or tagline, which is like art, art for everyone. Art for everyone. Right. And, you know, if you look though at sort of like the online space, you've got some folks at the high end, the artsies and the paddleates mm-hmm. and some of the auction houses and then you know a lot it's still like the lower poster-ish market Mm -hmm. it's not really like art for everyone what are we missing how do we get there you know what it was what does it take and what has maybe jen done well or what could you know more people do like jen to make sure that art does get to everyone it's a great question i mean there's something that i read the other day that really stuck in my mind was a man um and his wife and they live in downtown new york forget his name, but he's in his mid-80s, and they were sort of categorizing all his art. But when he came of age in the art world, so he must have been in the 60s, um, and he was, I for what I understand from the article, very friendly with many artists that have become major artists yeah. and had been in a show with them at that point of his life. But it really came down to, I can't afford to be an artist. I need to work. And so he worked in agencies. He created some of the most famous logos ever um, in terms of using his art brain for commercial products. Today, in the world that we're living in, where everyone wants to be an entrepreneur, that the companies that are being grown are giving everyone a lot more freedom, such as uh, unlimited vacations. Or really interesting people come in and talk to the companies. So it's a much more intellectual understanding how we live cultures that are going on in these businesses. Yeah. So is there these opportunities for people that can create art on the side while they're working that is interesting art that you could collect? I mean, there is nothing in between in many ways that is in the the range that's above the poster and below the really expensive things. Yeah. You know, there's stuff like the Affordable Art Festival, yeah. which is not that expensive, and there's great things to be collected for your home. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think more people are attuned to their art piece of themselves than they were 20 years ago. Um, you know, maybe we're becoming England where, yeah. you know, everyone becomes an artist. Mm-mm-mm. Possibly, but I mean, <laughs> going down that, do you, I mean, you've invested in a number of art companies, mm-hmm. Collecto, uh, Modsi, which is more of a design company, mm-hmm. Art Lifting. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you feel like that's helping fill that middle space or what was it about their thesis or hypothesis that got you excited about them? I think that, um, well, Art Lifting was interesting, is, is really a a social responsibility company, yeah. right? They're, they are taking artists who are um, really uh, homeless people um, and also um, military people that are, you know, struggling to survive and yeah. some obviously very down on their luck that happen to be artistic human beings, that they are creating these art pieces 
in um, homeless shelters that many homeless shelters actually have through social programs, places where people can create. And taking those pieces of fabulous art and making them into prints and giving the ability for those people to actually survive as artists. And so allowing these people to become entrepreneurs um, as artists. So that's a super cool thing. I mean, I really love what she's doing. And then you have other ones like, um, you know, I was involved in a company that was interested in disrupting the secondary market. If they had something like TagSmart, it'd be a lot easier um, because you're instead going to large galleries or art houses such as the Sotheby's in order to buy things in the secondary market. So there's that trust factor there. It's scary for people to buy that stuff mm-hmm. online without being someone of serious provenance behind the actual transaction. Um, so it took time, and I think it was more about it took time to rise that tide. Um, so that, you know, didn't survive, but he was on to something trying to change that. I think the majority of the rest of the things that I've invested in and looked at, so I just invest in a company called Arternal, which is a CRM um, uh, system for art galleries. And also it could be for, um, you know, large institutions. Um, but no one has figured out how everything is connected through one platform. You know, there are all these like one-off stuff. So like you go to a gallery or you go to a show and you're like, well, I like that artist and I, you don't have any left. What do you have left? It's like, oh, well, let me show you. We have left it in our studio at the gallery, but they don't even know if it's in-house or where it is or what the price is. So they have to go back and then they have to find your email and it's not so easy and it should be everything there. Um, so that's interesting. So I think that the most opportunity in the art world today for new businesses are back-end technologies to make those galleries or large places like a Sotheby's or a Phillips a better streamlined organization so that they are engaging their consumers in a better way, in a constant way, in helping them manage their collections as well. Yeah. Interesting. I guess part of that then just goes from, you know, you see like art buying something that's addicting and once you buy your first piece, you go back again totally. and again. So like tattoos. <laughs> like, I don't have any so tattoos. they say I don't either. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's to that point where it's almost just that they can manage those relationships better and be you know more organized. They can get people to buy and encourage them to buy more, make that easier, and then eventually And get to know them. Yeah. And get to know their taste and what, what their interests are. You know, I mean, when I went through um I was down at Basel. Yeah. And you know, there's some galleries that I know. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. You know, there was one particular um, group of work from an artist that I own some work of, which is James Casimir. Now, I bought James Casimir when his stuff was worth nothing. (laughs) You know, now it's worth a lot. Um, But I'm really interested in this next um, body of work that he's doing. And so if they had the right system, you know, which I think Arternal is, they would go back in the system It wouldn't be the singular art people that work at the gallery. My name would be in that system already. Anyone could go in and say, oh, Joanne Wilson came in here. These are the pieces she really liked. We should send her some stuff and just follow up with her and keep note of that in the system we have on her. And it shouldn't be for the salespeople. It should be the owner of the gallery that keeps that system. So if the salesperson leaves, I don't leave too. Yeah. 
Yeah, it seems like such a basic you think functionality so. yes. that, that they would have. <laughs> what, um, what, you know, on the design, you know, what impact do you think, uh, you know, design will have on people starting to collect? And what I mean by that is there's a lot of companies now that are helping people with design. So Modsy's one of them. Makes yep. it easier. Makes it easier, 3D. Uh, a lot of these companies, they don't really deal with original art, though. Do you think, however, that indirectly, that by people sort of caring more about design and having better design spaces, that that will encourage them yeah. to buy original? Or do you think it'll just make it easier for them to buy that Ikea poster that fits in their space? I think it depends on the person. Yeah. Um, you know, I, 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 what I love about Modsy is you know, majority of people, I think the number is like 85% of people that redesign their homes do it themselves. You know, 15% use decorators and designers, you know, because um, perhaps they have the capital, perhaps whatever it may be. And now there's so many interesting tools out there as people create their own environments, which is many ways the long tail of everyone creating their own brand. And so this is who I am. When you come into my house, it should look like me. And yeah. what's in my refrigerator should be a representation of me. And what's in my closets and what I wear and the art on my wall and how I put my furniture together. It's all a representation of me and who I am. And, you know, it used to be just called, well, that's who you are. But now it's like, it's part of your brand. Like even when you Instagram, you want to make sure that it's consistent to your theme. Yeah. And so um, Modsy's allowing people to use their... Um, system, which is 3D modeling, and to look at homes and look at rooms and create these environments for yourselves and then make suggestions of places you could buy these pieces yeah. and you can throw in your own stuff too. Um, so, um, and more of these art fairs, I think, have certainly changed the direction of more people wanting to collect art. Um, so I think all these things are really good. Yeah. Do you think we're at a turning point or like when do you think we'll reach this turning point where Art will be something that, you know, most people, you know, will be as popular as music or something that most people or more people participate in. Because it still seems like something that so few people, you know, do and buy original. Well, I think it depends on what original. I mean, you know, first of all, I want to go back to thinking about these art fairs. Yeah. Um, these are, you know, something that have just amplified over the last decade. And so if you own a gallery, that's how you can have a booth at an art fair. Yeah. But what's happening is the art fairs are so expensive for the galleries to participate that, you know, and you and you meet a lot of clients at these art fairs, you make a lot of purchases at sales at these art fairs, is that you think to yourself, well, God, you know, why do I need a gallery storefront? Maybe I should just have like a gallery in a building and, you know, I can have people come by because my overhead is going to be literally 80% less when I'm making majority of my sales at the shows and then I'm gathering clients through that show. And if I have a great CRM system, then I don't really need them to come to the gallery. And if it's done by TagSmart and they know it's actually real, I can do this all online, right? And I can just see this stuff when I come to the shows. Yeah. And so I think shows have become more important because everyone's on their smartphones. And people are finding ways and places to engage. And that's why museums are up in terms of people coming into museums, is that people want to be around other people and have experiences. Mm -hmm. And that's becoming more important um, every single day. And so perhaps someone's going to come up with a new kind of festival where there is different prices of art or it's ceramics from the seven top 
colleges that represent the next generation of artists, or maybe, you know, someone like Bard, which is the best art program, graduate art program in the country, in maybe the world, maybe they start having something where you can go in and buy the art. I mean, do you know that NYU at, not NYU, I'm sorry, at um, Cooper um, Union? Union, at Cooper Union, at the end of every year, they have a show of all of the artists and you can buy from directly from those students. I have myself. It's not that expensive. You know, and you're supporting a young artist in the beginning of their career. So I I think it's more about the knowledge and what's available um, because people want to engage with other people in the world when they have downtime. Yeah. Yeah, I I like that. You're right. I think the more, on one hand, I believe that, you know, art fairs can be intimidating for people to take their first step, and it depends. I mean, everyone now goes to sort of Miami Basel, but it's really just to go for the party. I oh, mean, totally. It's a fun event. You know, when are they going to, you know, but does that lead them to then, you know, be like, oh, okay, I'm around art. Right, well, I can't afford this now. I'm going to go to a smaller art fair in my, you know, my town or to like a, a university's art fair, you know, to see what the students are. And so, you know, what are the points that can trigger people to make that first purchase? Because, you know, once they get their first one, they come back again and again. I just, I wonder you know, if it, you know, if it's the art fairs or, or how do you get people to even go to the art fairs and then know where to go and not just stand there kind of aimlessly wandering around and go with like a bit of purpose? Well, I think there has to be more online um, information of where the, where these are taking place. Yeah. I also think people like you are doing podcasts where they're interviewing artists, you know, it's like you want to support someone who's young. I mean, you, you, we read about once in a blue moon of, uh, you know, someone that recently passed away and had been collecting art since they were like 12, yeah. you know, and that they, that was something they were passionate about. They met someone, they liked a piece, they collected and, you know, they've collected things that have gone up tremendously in value and they have an amazing collection that they're now leaving to someone. Um, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, I mean, certainly with the tax changes that are happening, supposedly art will not be as much as a great um, asset, uh, class. asset class. And I've never understood that. You know, to me, art is art, just like music is yeah. art, um, or theater is art, or movies are art. I don't think of it as an asset class. Um, and um, you know, I'm not impressed with people that have bought ridiculously expensive art because some art collector told them that's what you know, art person told them that sure. they've hired to do. Yeah. Um, because it will be worth so much money, it's a great place to put money into. Yeah. I mean, I think art should be collected as um, supporting artists and supporting the medium of art. Yeah. What What do you want to see as a collector and an investor, uh, you know, happen between the intersection of art and technology? So what is it maybe that you want to see more companies pop up with in a certain space perhaps or artists use of, of new technology? I want to see the people that represent artists be able to use um, better back-end technologies to create a much uh, more seamless experience for the consumer who is yeah. making those purchases. So that even the one that isn't purchasing today, who might purchase in a year, that there is a very seamless, open, pleasant, uh, no-attitude um, conversation that goes on between the people that are representing artists to the people that are looking to collect the art. 
Okay. And what about artists? What about them using? I mean, do you see digital becoming bigger or what? Like how? Digital's definitely becoming bigger. Yeah. Um, and certainly a lot of the up and coming artists who grew up with technology are creating really interesting art yeah. through computer imaging. Even the movies that we're seeing coming out, like the computer imaging is amazing. Yeah. Um, and, um, and many of them are using that medium as well as others to create interesting shows around their work and what they're thinking about. Um, so, you know, I think that will change. Um, but I, there is something that I don't know when will it change is that in order to be an artist with, um, a name and providence and, um, the top rising to the top of your career, you really have to have a very certain kind of gallery represent you and your work. And I don't know how that changes because those galleries have relationships with investors of art, collectors, um, and they have relationships with museums. Um, they have relationships with shows. Um, you know, I don't know if Picasso would have had the same success if he just was able to put his shit up on Facebook and sell it. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't think that we're there yet um, because, you know, as a first-time collector, knowing that you're buying from a really good gallery um, that's representing an artist, you know that there's a comfort level that they're going to make sure that this artist has a good career. They're looking out for them. Yeah. You know, they're not looking to like bring in an artist this year, dump them, bring in someone else next year. And then their art is not going to be, they're not going to help the artist grow in their career. You know, it's not about creating the art to be worth more. It's about allowing the artist the ability yeah. to grow and um, create other work as their career continues. Yeah. And if, I mean, I think if demand was there, I mean, ultimately, right, it'd be better to sell a thousand pieces for a thousand dollars and one piece for, you know, a hundred thousand, a million dollars. You know, because I think artists, it's like they want to get their work out there. It's just when there's, you know, a smaller set of people perhaps purchasing currently, that's in part what, you know, drives them to want to be in that gallery. I mean, I think additions are really cool. Jen Beckman does additions. Others do additions. Um, I think that that's an area that really has not been seriously explore, explore, explored. I mean, um, uh, what's her name? Uh, um, Rudin's, uh, Beth Rudin, uh, Beth DeWoody's daughter okay. did a site called the gray area or the gray something. And it was all editions of artists. Um, for instance, you know, if, um, uh, you know, I use Gerhard Richter again as, as an artist. If they went to him and said, you know, is there a medium you always wish you used? And he's like, hey, you know, I've really never done anything in pottery. I've always been this, you know, fantasy of mine to create a tea set. And it's like, well, you could make a tea set. Why don't you make them uh, one and we will make it um, uh, 3,000 of them as addition. You sign them. And like that's interesting art as well. Yeah. Um, and that's what she was doing. And then it did, I don't even know if it's it, she's still doing it. But I loved the concept um, that gave people um, an ability to create additions at 
much less price points. You know, I mean, even William Wegman, um, you know, Jan, Jan, um, Jen has all those pieces of him in the alphabet on her site, which are super cool. You know, he's not selling them as, uh, um, you know, artist proofs. You know, those are multiple photo photos that are being collected by a lot of people. And so I think that's a, an interesting way for people to start collecting. Yeah. You know, you can't afford the million dollar piece, sure. but you could afford the collection that's 3,000 pieces that the artist put out and it's $2,500. Yeah. yeah. I think, and you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, with that too, it's, you know, getting people comfortable in the story you talked about. I mean, I always think about, you know, video you know, playing a bigger role in helping artists tell that story online that can get more people perhaps to buy. So I think that's another example of technology like you talked about, story and how important that is. Video can really help artists tell their story. Yeah. Which yeah. could be something else that, you know, gets more people comfortable in, in purchasing and, and knowing who this artist is and, you know, being able to talk about them. Right. And I think pricing is important. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I own work from both Vanessa and Alex Prager. And, um, Vanessa, um, I first saw her art, um, in LA at a show. I was really interested because it was Alex Prager's sister and I went to the show and the pieces were not that expensive. You know, they were these small blocks. They were super cool. I thought what she was doing was really interesting. She's not a trained artist. And I think they were each you know, $2,500 a piece. And I thought, wow, you know, super affordable. It's a real piece of art, you know, in, in, in like, I know women would buy a $2,500 bag, you know, it's yeah. like, this is a piece of art. Now, of course, she's grown and her art is worth more money, but I love that that gallerist nurtured her from very early on and created a show of pieces that weren't that expensive for yeah. early collectors. Um, that they could now follow her. And they might get to a point, as I have with many art that I've collected, where I can't afford that anymore. Sure. I'm really glad I bought it at the beginning, but it's no different than technology. I invested in the company, was super early. I put money in. It was a super low valuation. And now the company's worth $400 million. I couldn't get in that company even if I wanted to. Yeah. Because I couldn't afford the price of the stock. I love the comparison. All right. Well, with that, Joanne, let's... Go into a quick rapid fire before sure. I let you go. Okay, first question is, what is one word that describes you? <laughs> um, God, that's a tough one. Yeah? Um, All right, you want to come back to that? Yeah. All right, what is your guilty pleasure? I'm getting stoned. <laughs> All right, there you go. <laughs> Who is your favorite superhero? Oh. Uh Super, you know, was was a Gal Gadot, um, Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman. All right, Wonder Woman. And which portfolio has done better, your art investing or your tech investing? I hope that they're uh, head to head. Head to head. All right. <laughs> well, Joy, it's been such a pleasure for the audience listening. Where can we find you? You can find me at GothamGal.com, and you can listen to my podcast at Positively Gotham Gal. Great. Thank, Thank you so you. much. So to find Joanne, visit GothamGal.com or the Gotham Gal on Twitter. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review it. Leaving a review is super easy and it helps listeners like you discover the podcast. Oh yeah, and don't forget to check us out at State of the Art on Twitter for behind the scenes photos, a sneak peek to next week's episode, and really cool art videos you're going to want to show your friends. 
Thanks again to Van Gogh for sponsoring this episode and to all of you for listening. Remember, if you're an artist looking to create more or a buyer wanting to enrich your home with original art, visit vangoart.co slash podcast and save 30%.